Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Alice Kelly, a fellow at Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, standing in today for Adam Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, the President-elect of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. and Dr. Jill Biden. In January 2021, as Joe Biden stood on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, having just been sworn in as president, he did something completely unprecedented in inaugural addresses. He asked the American people to join him in a moment of prayer to remember those who had lost their lives during the pandemic. Look, you all know we've been through so much in this nation. And my first act as president, I'd like to ask you to join me in a moment of silent prayer. Remember all those who we lost in this past year to the pandemic. Marking that particular moment in that way ends up uh, framing the entire administration and its mission at that point. It was going to try to turn that memory into hard action. And it was so interesting to see memory framed in such an actionable way. After so many months of the, what, you know, what really were lies and doublespeak, this was just a pause to acknowledge the loss. And that's really what had been missing all along. That moment of silence that President Biden called for in his speech is a gesture with roots in 20th century commemorative practices, a legacy of the First World War and its two-minute silence. And like the First World War and the influenza pandemic that followed it, COVID has been a turning point in the history of death. So how will people in America inherit the memory of the pandemic? How will it be memorialised and commemorated? And how do we memorialise something that has had vastly unequal effects amongst different groups in American society? To discuss these ideas, I'm joined by two of the world's leading memory scholars, both based in New York City, the pandemic's epicentre here in the US. James E. Young is Distinguished University Professor Emeritus of English and Judaic and Near Eastern Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Mariana Hirsch is William Peterfield Trent Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and the co-director of the Zip Code Memory Project. This is not a punctual event like a war or, or genocide, but it's really this extended period of loss You know, we mark history by having these markers, uh, moments of transition. I do think that the effects of this pandemic on uh, the generation of children who were very young or who are very young right now, and then of children who are just being born or about to be born, who have not lived this particular moment, the um, consciousness in the United States of the tremendous social inequalities that have produced such a differential effects of this pandemic, uh, the killing of George Floyd and the protests following and Black Lives Matter. I mean, a number of things that have come together now that I think create a moment that's a, that, that will be seen in the future as a moment of transition. And I think that that will be passed down. And I think um, children, for example, or young people growing up now, when we think of what they will transmit uh, to a future generation, as parents, as teachers, uh, as elders, I think there will be something about this moment where, you know, we can't take, especially in, you know, the global north, let's say, 
we can't take, there's many things we can no longer take for granted. Some some feeling of safety and confidence that you can plan your trip, you know, abroad or that you can plan your family party for, you know, nine months from now. I mean, all of that, that confidence is now eroding. And I think that will be the powerful conjunction of events or, or realizations that will that that constitute a, a transformation or a change how that will go is is obviously still very unclear and probably in many ways but i think that this will be the you know the post memory memorial transmission that will occur uh in the future building on what marion said about how we are uh marked by the memory of those who were lost um, I was struck by uh, Kristen Urquiza's wonderful project um, called Marked by COVID, which is uh, very early, uh, even before there were vaccines. Uh, she was looking at the ways her life, her mother's life, uh, were being uh, shaped and reshaped by the loss of the father and, and what it meant. And she grasped immediately that it meant both the loss of a parent um, and she grasped the the reason for that loss which was in her words um, he did nothing wrong except to believe in Trump and to believe that it wasn't serious and so didn't wear a mask because Trump said it wasn't it wasn't necessary and and now he's gone uh, because of this so for her the death had both loss built into it and uh, this kind of dereliction, you know, of, of duty, the administration's duty to protect us, you know, built into it. And that's what marked her. So that, that's her, that was her, her post memory of this, um, how she was shaped by the story of her father's passing. Um, you know, I think of um, Art Spiegelman's mouse is like maybe our greatest example of, you know, Marianne's um, theory of post memory how how little art is shaped by his parents' story and that he carries the the memory of what happened to his parents, you know, with him always. And it, uh, for better or worse, that memory helps him make sense of the current moment. And uh, Kristen Orquiza was painfully aware that she was making sense of the whole world now in light of her father's loss and wanted to create a space uh, where everybody could, um, could, could embrace this terrible new, this terrible new fact of life. Um, this reminds me also of Carla Funderburg's uh, wonderful memorial cranes, um, which she found to be quite um, consoling in that just the activity, the few minutes activity in folding these cranes allowed her to spend time uh, with, with the memory of the lost loved one. And then uh, allowing families to, to do this and then to collect them together is, is a way to, to collect the time spent in the company of your lost loved one's memory and multiplying it, you know, by, by the hundreds and then by the thousands in these wonderful installations of these cranes where she would then hang from uh, copper wires, you know, in these uh, various exhibition venues. Um, and this was also fairly early on. Uh, she was doing this again before there were vaccines, so it was very difficult actually to visit them 
so she would put them behind uh, uh, storefront windows so that people on the street could walk past them. They could be masked and you kind of see them in passing um, you know, er everywhere and, and contribute to them themselves so that everybody would, you know, was able to contribute. And she began receiving packages of hundreds, you know, at a time, uh, which then she found dozens of venues, you know, for installing, you know, to, to show the massive scale like this. And each crane represents one life. Yeah. Um, and that seems yeah. to me to be very, you know, a trope going across all of these memorials, whether we think about Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg's in America, colon, remember, uh, which was a project to put uh, hundreds of thousands of white flags all over the National Mile. Um, or there's a project in California, Rose River Memorial, which puts up a, a, a woolen flower for each person. It seems to me many of these projects are about individualizing these numbers, trying to humanize these numbers. Mm -hmm. Have there been any other kind of memorial tropes you've seen invoked? Well, I, I know that Suzanne Furstenberg's uh, memorial, she said in an interview with the Boston Globe, uh, was provoked by outrage, outrage that these deaths would be seen as nothing more than a statistic. And she wanted to show that, that they're much more than a, uh, a statistic. And uh, Kristen Urquiza also said that her whole project was motivated by, by the rage she felt toward a, an administration uh, which had uh, abandoned its duty to protect us. Um, and Mariana's uh, wonderful project, you know, Zip Code, also I think allows for that um, uh, for the memory that is also inspired by this terrible rage and frustration. I was going to say, Mariana, can you tell us about this interesting experience? Both of you have had this experience, actually, being a kind of memory study scholar turned practitioner. Um, Mariana, can you tell us about the Zip Code Memory Project and any challenges you faced in this project and opportunities? Well, just briefly, this is a, a, a number of us. Um, Diana Taylor, who's a colleague in performance studies, uh, Lori Novak, um, and Susan Micellis, who are artists, and Laura Wexler, who's a scholar from Yale, came together. We actually were a reading group, uh, and we were, we started reading about COVID and we've worked together in different memory projects across in different parts of the globe. And we started looking at our very own neighborhood here in New York City and the neighborhood actually around Columbia, which had such, such different effects of COVID on different zip codes, which are postal codes, but they divide, uh, they divide the city into smaller areas. And some areas, uh, had much, much lower infection rates and then uh, later also vaccination rates and certainly death rates than others, even though they're very proximate to each other. So it was really the unequal effects of COVID on proximate neighborhoods. It's very, very locally, local inequalities that inspired the project. And the project was really about how do you build community after you're aware of so much inequality? And it was also inspired by the fact that people have been extremely isolated from each other. Social distancing has, was the, the term and have not been able to process and experience, especially mourning and loss together, not just mourning and loss of loved ones, but also of local, uh, stores and clubs and, uh, institutions that have had to close because of the pandemic. So the work we try to do is really to, to build, to, 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 to uh, build community and to make a space for 
even not just expressing, but feeling the emotions that we have not allowed ourselves to feel during this pandemic. And that's actually what happened through a series of workshops that we've been doing with community, with artists and, uh, and uh, students and community members who've come together through performance workshops inspired by Augusto Boal and the Theater of the Oppressed, through body mapping, I mean, a session where we were lie down on the floor and somebody draws the map of our body and we try to locate where COVID and the memory of COVID sit, has been sitting in our bodies. So very different kinds of not thinking about stuff, but really trying to allow some of these feelings to emerge, but in community, not by ourselves. And uh, it, it's it's brought together paradigms that are not paradigms of loss and mourning and trauma, but also care, mutual aid, healing. I mean, something that in memory studies we haven't really been talking about as much because I think we've been very trauma-oriented. And uh, So the rage, how to turn the rage and the anger that James has been talking about into action, but also into a space of community in which we just take the time to mark what has happened and not just move right on. So these are not kind of built memorials, but they're memorial practices because in each one of these sessions, people tell stories um, and, or they, they make something that will express uh, some of the things that they've experienced. But in the space of communities of strangers who come, who, who are open enough and willing enough to come together and to be together and to make a little space for community together. And I think that some of the projects that James talks about have the, some of the same quality. I mean, the cranes are there, but people come and offer them the, uh, you know, and, 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 and come and, and, and talk about them together or offer, you know, offer them together. It's not the work of one artist. It's really about, uh, this kind of grassroots, um, possibility of, um, creating a communal uh, practice that could, could, you know, travel and be used in other communities. But, uh, you know, I think there's so many other examples of things we could do. And I think it would be wonderful to continue this conversation and learn from the practices that these grassroots groups have developed in many different places. So if I could just give one more example of something that's inspired me to commemorate the Triangle Fire in uh, lower New York City, there is a practice called chalking. Now on every every um, anniversary day, a number of young women across the city go to the house where one of the women who was killed, workers who was killed in the fire used to live and write something with chalk on the sidewalk like, Somebody who lived here died in a fire or even just the name and the dates. And people gather around and they tell the story of this person. Now, it's very fleeting. It's an ephemeral memorial. But uh, I think it's such an incredibly beautiful, inspiring practice. And I could see this happening about COVID. Of course, it's inspired by the stumbling stones that are all over Europe. But this is not a stumbling stone. It's a practice that has to be you can't forget that it's there, you know, as you do with the assembly zone, it becomes part of the landscape. This has to be repeated like a ritual 
like a yard site, you know, like a ritual memorial practice year after year. And of course, hand it down because if it continues, then younger people will do it the next year and the, the next year. So the stories are somehow kept alive. But I could see for COVID, you know, of course, we will need a memorial in New York City. There's no question. But these kinds of smaller practices uh, might be also equally effective. So this is a kind of that's really fascinating, a kind of living um, replicating memorial happening every year, a kind of transitory version of the stumbling stones or the Stolpersteiner, which, if any of our listeners don't know, are the permanent stones put outside the homes of Holocaust victims across Europe that you can literally stumble across anywhere across Europe. So that's a really fascinating and, as you say, maybe transferable to the COVID context. Um I, I have a feeling we're going to be thinking much more sort of outside the box when we think about COVID memorialization, but I'm going to go back to the idea of a more physical memorial to begin with. So I'm going to turn to James here and say many, many people, many groups are calling for a memorial to the victims of the pandemic, whether on a local or on a national scale. Um, can you tell us about some of the opportunities, the challenges that this would present? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about it a lot and I know that, um, even uh, Kristen Orkiza has been thinking about what a a single national memorial you know, might look like. And my take is that we need to um, uh, think of the memorial um, as uh, already ongoing and think of the memorial perhaps uh, uh, as as a constellation of many, many groups, um, local grassroots memorials. Think of it as a memorial matrix. Um, every project, uh, every, every group remembering their own, whether they're firefighters or police officers or school teachers in New York City, every um, municipal agency has its own memorial page. Uh, remembering the teachers as teachers and sanitation workers on the front line you know, who couldn't avoid it because they, they still had to, they had to work. The, the physicians and the, and the, and, and the nurses and the healthcare providers who, who got sick, you know, trying to save, trying to save others being remembered, you know, in, by their own communities in that way. And, you know, thinking of, um, all of these memories is not, is not competing memories. But as again, as a as a collective of many, many disparate memories of all shapes and sizes, um, and I think that we now have the the media and you know kind of the, the technology available to us to to be able to uh, map all of these, um, and so that the memorial exists basically in our in our search for the constellation and drawing the lines between them. And the, the sites that we visit, and then maybe the sites that we don't visit, and the projects that are designed and built, and the projects that are designed and not built. We can keep track of all these things, and they they all become part of what we call, you know, the the memorial, the the, the COVID memorial. Is there a place for a, a single setting, perhaps, uh, where people can gather? Uh, yes, and that too, but to the extent that that would somehow take the place of all these other memorial initiatives uh, and activities and spaces and installations and recitations and, and, and rituals, 
um, then I would prefer that a single space maybe not be built, you know, and I think it's, um, it, it's too much memory for, for a single space. And Marianne raised earlier this really important part that part of the memorial is, um, the need for keeping company with others and, and mourning in communities. It's not something we do very well by ourselves and we shouldn't be asked to do it uh, by ourselves. Some of the, the great, uh, sessions that zip code has, has launched has been just looking at these, uh, these other memorial projects, you know, devoted to commemorating other kinds of events and triangulating memory. Our, our therapists tell us that, you know, in one loss, we remember all of our losses. And that my advice when, um, I'm asked, you know, by the Norwegian government, for example, you know, how to mourn the, the 69 you know, kids killed on the island of Utøya by the uh, white nationalist anti-immigrant fanatic uh, in 2011, and um, and they just asked, they wanted like a, a single answer, and I said, well, I, I didn't come here to tell you what to make or what to do, but I came here to keep you company, as and we'll figure this out together. Um, and meanwhile, let's look at all all these other. Um, ways that other people have remembered other terrible catastrophes not not to find a template for the current memorial project but almost to keep company uh with others who have mourned before and and to come to your memory here indirectly and not to come at it head on but feel free to come at it from another direction and to kind of free associate other people's losses as well and that you know, we're really here to keep each other company as we as we figure this out together. Yeah, I think that the tremendous challenges here is that yes, every single person needs to be remembered. And you know, we, you've written about this, Alice. You know how important names are and individualizing the losses and just making sense of the magnitude by having one flag for each person or one crane for each person, and just seeing how many that would be and how enormous it would look but uh but but there's still a need for a, a kind of official acknowledgement that say biden provided on that evening you know in his inauguration and there's something about a memorial day uh something that creates a space for observance that acknowledgement acknowledges that this is not just an individual communal uh event but that there's responsibility taken by a government or even a transnational group for the fact that it didn't have to be this way. How do you mark that um, somehow? So it, it doesn't, it's not just a perfunctory thing, but a really deep kind of reckoning. And people ask, you know, what are the precedents or what, what templates would you go to? And the AIDS quilt is one that's been named a lot because it's a similar kind of loss over many years. Uh, and and maybe that's that's a pretty good example to go to, and also was grassroots, but then it grew into a, you know, into a much bigger thing. But it's it's a challenge to think about how you could balance these very very different needs, and certainly one memorial might not do that. But is there a way for different memorials to speak to each other in different parts of the globe? Because we've all suffered 
differentially, but we have all suffered. All of these thoughts are so fascinating. There's so many things I want to respond to here. One one thing I'm just going to say is that in the British context, it's been interesting to see in terms of providing a space for reflection, it's a cancer charity, the Marie Curie Cancer Charity, that has set up unofficially a national day of reflection. And it, it seems in my mind to have stepped in where the government hasn't to say we're using a memorial trope. And they interestingly say this day is for all who've lost their lives during the pandemic, not just COVID victims. And it's it's had two national days of reflection so far. And we'll see if it becomes a more official memorial. We'll see. So in the specifically American context, I'm wondering if the that national context is important, given the numbers of American dead, which is currently over 983,000, the highest death toll in the world. Does this make the need for a, a memorial of some kind, whether it's a, a stone memorial, whether it's a national memorial in a specific location, whether it's something more innovative, does it make that need more pressing, more urgent for people? Carving out a, a space on the calendar and carving it out uh, on the national calendar where it will be, in fact, uh, echoing a particular uh, lockdown order or maybe when back vaccines were you know first you know first presented or or okay in a country like America with so many losses finding that the common moment that kind of binds us all together in time might be the only thing we could actually do i think well or successfully i'm not i'm not sure we can market simply with a national memorial or with a New York memorial <clears throat> or a California memorial. I mean, that, that's kind of an American tension. You know, <clears throat> the United States aren't always all that united. <laughs> and so we, uh, <clears throat> we'll have to, we have to learn how to remember separately and together, you know, uh, you know, at the, at the, at the very same time. So I, I would look for that day, maybe, um, you know, becoming the first, uh, so-called uh, central memorial. So in, in our zip code memory project, the first half was about memorialization. Let's just take a measure of the loss and sit with it. The second half, we're turning toward what do we want? Where do we want to be? Something, what is, what is burgeoning out of all this loss? What is grow? What can, what can grow? What can the future look like? So we, you know, it's called the zip code memory project and it's on practices of justice and repair. And I would, if, if James, if you set up this day of commemoration, I would urge you to make it not just a day of commemoration or memorialization, but to make it a day for justice and repair, um, memory, justice and repair or something that would have a, a future oriented, and that would mark the failures and what we need to demand to repair them somehow. I, I would agree completely. Um, I, I love putting uh, justice and repair together like that. Uh, repairing via justice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that this is, this is how we arrive at justice. And this seems to fit into what... Um the memory studies scholar Marita Sturkin has argued in her recent book, Terrorism in American Memory, which is that she traces a movement from memorials that perpetuate a narrative of innocence towards activist-centred memorials, which challenge their viewer to take responsibility and demand for social political change, in this case, a kind of reparative memory. 
Does that, can you see a future COVID memorial kind of fitting into that more activist centered, more kind of reparative notion? That seems to be what you're suggesting, Mariana. Absolutely. I think that's that our series of roundtables have been on reparative memory and we had to kind of think, well, what is that? You know, what is reparative memory and what is reparative? What is repair really? And, uh, I mean, it draws from reparation, of course, you know, the uh, compensation for loss and so on, of course. But I'm thinking of it as a very, um, in very small terms, as an act of repair, but that you have to, that, that has to be active, that you have to do as an action and an, and an embodied action. Uh, so not in this kind of abstract sense. But, you know, very concrete. And of course, reparation is also very concrete. It, it, it needs to be symbolic, but it also needs to be concrete for it to work. And as you, you always say, James, the process is the memorialization. And if our process includes a discussion of how to set things right, um, even if we don't have the illusion that they will be set absolutely right within a year or five years, that could do a lot about not just marking the loss and remembering those people, which is so incredibly important, but in their name to try to uh, think about justice and repair. How do we mitigate against a pandemic better next time and let those those small policy differences, um, what we might have done better, what we didn't do well enough, be part of, w- of what we're working through? Yeah, in this in this commemorative act. What is certain is that this pandemic has had profound effects, and we're only just at the beginning of understanding how far-reaching these effects are. What is clear is that the pandemic has laid bare social inequality and the ways in which different socio-economic and racial groups have been unequally affected. The grassroots memorial we've seen so far have often been inspired by anger. And we can learn from the memorial practices that many grassroots groups have developed. Should there be a national COVID memorial in the US? Or as James suggests, would a memorial matrix, a constellation of many different grassroots memorials, be more effective? Many people still feel the need for an official acknowledgement of their loss. And hopefully it will be the notion of reparative memory, memory which includes justice and repair, that is a large part of our commemorative efforts going forward. I'd like to thank our two panellists, Mariana Hirsch and James Young, for sharing their expertise today. My name is Alice Kelly, and you've been listening to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's RAI. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Goodbye.